Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Section 10 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 The Assistant Commissioner, driven rapidly in a hansom from the neighbourhood of Soho in the direction of Westminster, got out at the very centre of the empire on which the sun never sets. Some stalwart constables, who did not seem particularly impressed by the duty of watching the august spot, saluted him, penetrating through a portal by no means lofty into the precincts of the house which is THE house par excellence in the minds of many millions of men, he was met at last by the volatile and revolutionary Toodles. That neat and nice young man concealed his astonishment at the early appearance of the assistant commissioner, whom he had been told to look out for some time about midnight. His turning up so early he concluded to be the sign that things, whatever they were, had gone wrong. With an extremely ready sympathy, which in nice youngsters goes often with a joyous temperament, he felt sorry for the great presence he called the chief, and also for the assistant commissioner, whose face appeared to him more ominously wooden than ever before, and quite wonderfully long. "'What a queer, foreign-looking chap he is,' he thought to himself, smiling from a distance with friendly buoyancy. And directly they came together, he began to talk with the kind intention of burying the awkwardness of failure under a heap of words. It looked as if the great assault threatened for that night were going to fizzle out. An inferior henchman of that brute cheeseman, was up boring mercilessly a very thin house with some shamelessly cooked statistics. He, Toodles, hoped he would bore them into a count-out every minute. But then he might be only marking time to let that guzzling cheeseman dine at his leisure. Anyway, the chief could not be persuaded to go home. "'He will see you at once, I think. He's sitting all alone in his room, thinking of all the fishes of the sea.' concluded Toodles airily. "'Come along!' Notwithstanding the kindness of his disposition, the young private secretary, unpaid, was accessible to the common failings of humanity. He did not wish to harrow the feelings of the assistant commissioner, who looked to him uncommonly like a man who has made a mess of his job. But his curiosity was too strong to be restrained by mere compassion. He could not help, as they went along, to throw over his shoulder lightly. "'And your Sprat?' "'Got him,' answered the Assistant Commissioner, with a concision which did not mean to be repellent in the least. "'Good! You've no idea how these great men dislike to be disappointed in small things.' 
After this profound observation the experienced Toodles seemed to reflect. At any rate he said nothing for quite two seconds. Then— I am glad. But, I say, is it really such a very small thing as you make it out? Do you know what may be done with a sprat? the assistant commissioner asked in his turn. He's sometimes put into a sardine-box," chuckled Toodles, whose erudition on the subject of the fishing industry was fresh, and, in comparison with his ignorance of all other industrial matters, immense. There are sardine canneries on the Spanish coast which— The assistant commissioner interrupted the apprentice statesman. Yes, yes, but a sprat is also thrown away sometimes in order to catch a whale. A whale! Phew! exclaimed Toodles, with bated breath. "'You're after a whale, then?' "'Not exactly. What I am after is more like a dogfish. You don't know, perhaps, what a dogfish is like?' "'Yes, I do. We're buried in special books up to our necks, whole shelves full of them, with plates. It's a noxious, rascally-looking, altogether detestable beast, with a sort of smooth face and moustaches.' "'Described to a tea commended the assistant commissioner. Only mine is clean-shaven altogether. You've seen him. It's a witty fish." "'I have seen him,' said Toodles incredulously. "'I can't conceive where I could have seen him.' "'At the Explorers, I should say,' dropped the assistant commissioner calmly. At the name of that extremely exclusive club, Toodles looked scared and stopped short. "'Nonsense!' he protested, but in an awe-struck tone. "'What do you mean? A member?' "'Honorary,' muttered the assistant commissioner through his teeth. "'Heavens!' Toodles looked so thunderstruck that the assistant commissioner smiled faintly. "'That's between ourselves, strictly,' he said. "'That's the beastliest thing I've ever heard in my life,' declared Toodles feebly as if astonishment had robbed him of all his buoyant strength in a second. The assistant commissioner gave him an unsmiling glance. Till they came to the door of the great man's room, Toodles preserved a scandalised and solemn silence, as though he were offended with the assistant commissioner for exposing such an unsavoury and disturbing fact. It revolutionised his idea of the Explorers Club's extreme selectness, of its social purity. Toodles was revolutionary only in politics. His social beliefs and personal feelings he wished to preserve unchanged through all the years allotted to him on this earth which, upon the whole, he believed to be a nice place to live on. He stood aside. "'Go in without knocking,' he said. Shades of green silk, fitted low over all the lights, imparted to the room something of a forest's deep gloom. The haughty eyes were physically the great man's weak point. This point was wrapped up in secrecy. When an opportunity offered, he rested them conscientiously. The assistant commissioner entering saw at first only a big pale hand supporting a big head, and concealing the upper part of a big pale face. An open dispatch-box stood on the writing-table, near a few oblong sheets of paper, and a scattered handful of quill-pens. There was absolutely nothing else on the large, flat surface, except a little bronze statuette draped in a toga, mysteriously watchful in its shadowy immobility. The assistant commissioner, invited to take a chair, sat down. 
in the dim light, the salient points of his personality, the long face, the black hair, his lankness, made him look more foreign than ever. The great man manifested no surprise, no eagerness, no sentiment whatever. The attitude in which he rested his menaced eyes was profoundly meditative. He did not alter it the least bit. But his tone was not dreamy. "'Well, what is it that you've found out already? You came upon something unexpected on the first step?' "'Not exactly unexpected, Sir Ethelred. What I mainly came upon was a psychological state.' The great presence made a slight movement. "'You must be lucid, please.' "'Yes, Sir Ethelred. You know, no doubt, that most criminals at some time or other feel an irresistible need of confessing, of making a clean breast of it to somebody—to anybody. And they do it often to the police. In that Verloc, whom Heat wished so much to screen, I found a man in that particular psychological state. The man, figuratively speaking, flung himself on my breast. It was enough on my part to whisper to him who I was, and to add, I know that you are at the bottom of this affair. It must have seemed miraculous to him that we should know already, but he took it all in the stride. The wonderfulness of it never checked him for a moment. There remained for me only to put to him the two questions, who put you up to it, and who was the man who did it? He answered the first with remarkable emphasis. As to the second question, I gather that the fellow with the bomb was his brother-in-law, quite a lad, a weak-minded creature. It is a rather curious affair, too long perhaps to state fully just now. "'What, then, have you learned?' asked the great man. First, I've learnt that the ex-convict Michaelis had nothing to do with it, though indeed the lad had been living with him temporarily in the country, up to eight o'clock this morning. It is more than likely that Michaelis knows nothing of it to this moment. "'You are positive as to that?' asked the great man. "'Quite certain, Sir Ethelred. This fellow Verloc went there this morning, and took away the lad on the pretence of going out for a walk in the lanes. As it was not the first time that he did this, Michaelis could not have the slightest suspicion of anything unusual. For the rest, Sir Ethelred, the indignation of this man Verloc had left nothing in doubt, nothing whatever. He had been driven out of his mind almost by an extraordinary performance, which, for you or me, it would be difficult to take as seriously meant, but which produced a great impression obviously on him. The Assistant Commissioner then imparted briefly to the great man, who sat still, resting his eyes under the screen of his hand, Mr. Verloc's appreciation of Mr. Vladimir's proceedings and character. The Assistant Commissioner did not seem to refuse it a certain amount of competency. But the great personage remarked, "'All this seems very fantastic.' "'Doesn't it? One would think a ferocious joke. But our man took it seriously, it appears. He felt himself threatened. In the time, you know, he was in direct communication with old Stott Wartenheim himself, and had come to regard his services as indispensable. It was an extremely rude awakening. I imagine that he lost his head. He became angry and frightened. Upon my word, my impression is that he thought these embassy people quite capable not only to throw him out, but to give him away, too, in some manner or other." "'How long were you with him?' interrupted the presence, from behind his big hand. "'Some forty minutes, Sir Ethelred, in a house of bad repute called Continental Hotel, closeted in a room which, by the by, I took for the night. 
I found him under the influence of that reaction which follows the effort of crime. The man cannot be defined as a hardened criminal. It is obvious that he did not plan the death of that wretched lad, his brother-in-law. That was a shock to him, I could see that. Perhaps he is a man of strong sensibilities. Perhaps he was even fond of the lad, who knows? He might have hoped that the fellow would get clear away, in which case it would have been almost impossible to bring this thing home to any one. At any rate he risked consciously nothing more but arrest for him." The Assistant Commissioner paused in his speculations to reflect for a moment. Though how, in that last case, he could hope to have his own share in the business concealed is more than I can tell," he continued, in his ignorance of poor Stevie's devotion to Mr. Verloc, who was good, and of his truly peculiar dumbness, which in the old affair of fireworks on the stairs had for many years resisted entreaties, coaxing, anger and other means of investigation used by his beloved sister. For Stevie was loyal. No, I can't imagine. It's possible that he never thought of that at all. It seems an extravagant way of putting it, Sir Ethelred, but his state of dismay suggested to me an impulsive man who, after committing suicide with the notion that it would end all his troubles, had discovered that it did nothing of the kind." The Assistant Commissioner gave this definition in an apologetic voice. But in truth there is a sort of lucidity proper to extravagant language, and the great man was not offended. A slight jerky movement of the big body, half lost in the gloom of the green silk shades, of the big head leaning on the big hand, accompanied an intermittent, stifled but powerful sound. The great man had laughed. "'What have you done with him?' The Assistant Commissioner answered very readily. "'As he seemed very anxious to get back to his wife in the shop, I let him go, Sir Ethelred.' "'You did? But the fellow will disappear.' Pardon me, I don't think so. Where could he go to? Moreover, you must remember that he has got to think of the danger from his comrades, too. He's there at his post. How could he explain leaving it? But even if there were no obstacles to his freedom of action, he would do nothing. At present he hasn't enough moral energy to take a resolution of any sort. Permit me also to point out that if I had detained him, we would have been committed to a course of action on which I wished to know your precise intentions first." The great personage rose heavily, an imposing shadowy form in the greenish gloom of the room. "'I'll see the Attorney-General to-night, and will send for you to-morrow morning. Is there anything more you'd wish to tell me now?' The Assistant Commissioner had stood up also, slender and flexible. "'I think not, Sir Ethelred unless I were to enter into details which—" No, no details, please. The great shadowy form seemed to shrink away, as if in physical dread of details, then came forward, expanded, enormous and weighty, offering a large hand. And you say that this man has got a wife? Yes, Sir Ethelred, said the Assistant Commissioner, pressing deferentially the extended hand a genuine wife and a genuinely, respectably, marital relation. He told me that after his interview at the Embassy he would have thrown everything up, would have tried to sell his shop and leave the country, only he felt certain that his wife would not even hear of going abroad. Nothing could be more characteristic of the respectable bond than that," went on, with a touch of grimness, the Assistant Commissioner, whose own wife, too, had refused to hear of going abroad. Yes, a genuine wife and the victim was a genuine brother-in-law. 
From a certain point of view we are here in the presence of a domestic drama." The Assistant Commissioner laughed a little, but the great man's thoughts seemed to have wandered far away, perhaps to the questions of his country's domestic policy, the battleground of his crusading valour against the Paynim cheeseman. The Assistant Commissioner withdrew quietly, unnoticed, as if already forgotten. He had his own crusading instincts. This affair, which, in one way or another, disgusted Chief Inspector Heat, seemed to him a providentially given starting-point for a crusade. He had it much at heart to begin. He walked slowly home, meditating that enterprise on the way, and thinking over Mr. Verloc's psychology in a composite mood of repugnance and satisfaction. He walked all the way home. Finding the drawing-room dark, he went upstairs, and spent some time between the bedroom and the dressing-room, changing his clothes, going to and fro with the air of a thoughtful somnambulist. But he shook it off before going out again to join his wife at the house of the great lady patroness of Michaelis. He knew he would be welcomed there. On entering the smaller of the two drawing-rooms, he saw his wife in a small group near the piano. A youngish composer in pass of becoming famous was discoursing from a music-stool to two thick men whose backs looked old, and three slender women whose backs looked young. Behind the screen the great lady had only two persons with her, a man and a woman, who sat side by side on armchairs at the foot of her couch. She extended her hand to the assistant commissioner. "'I never hoped to see you here to-night. Annie told me—' "'Yes, I had no idea myself that my work would be over so soon.' The assistant commissioner added in a low tone, "'I am glad to tell you that Michaelis is altogether clear of this.' The patroness of the ex-convict received this assurance indignantly. "'Why? Were your people stupid enough to connect him with—' "'Not stupid,' interrupted the assistant commissioner, contradicting deferentially. "'Clever enough, quite clever enough for that.' A silence fell. The man at the foot of the couch had stopped speaking to the lady, and looked on with a faint smile. "'I don't know whether you ever met before,' said the great lady. Mr. Vladimir and the assistant commissioner, introduced, acknowledged each other's existence with punctilious and guarded courtesy. "'He's been frightening me,' declared suddenly the lady who sat by the side of Mr. Vladimir, with an inclination of the head towards that gentleman. The assistant commissioner knew the lady. "'You do not look frightened,' he pronounced, after surveying her conscientiously with his tired and equable gaze. He was thinking meantime to himself that in this house one met everybody sooner or later. Mr. Vladimir's rosy countenance was wreathed in smiles, because he was witty, but his eyes remained serious, like the eyes of convinced man. "'Well, he tried to, at least,' amended the lady. "'Force of habit, perhaps.' said the Assistant Commissioner, moved by an irresistible inspiration. "'He has been threatening society with all sorts of horrors,' continued the lady, whose enunciation was caressing and slow. "'Apropos of this explosion in Greenwich Park. It appears we all ought to quake in our shoes at what's coming, if those people are not suppressed all over the world. I had no idea this was such a grave affair.' Mr. Vladimir, affecting not to listen, leaned towards the couch talking amiably in subdued tones, but he heard the Assistant Commissioner say, "'I've no doubt that Mr. Vladimir has a very precise notion of the true importance of this affair.' 
Mr. Vladimir asked himself what that confounded and intrusive policeman was driving at. Descended from generations victimized by the instruments of an arbitrary power, he was racially, nationally, and individually afraid of the police. It was an inherited weakness, altogether independent of his judgment, of his reason, of his experience. He was born to it. But that sentiment, which resembled the irrational horror some people have of cats, did not stand in the way of his immense contempt for the English police. He finished the sentence addressed to the great lady, and turned slightly in his chair. "'You mean that we have a great experience of these people? Yes, indeed, we suffer greatly from their activity, while you—' Mr. Vladimir hesitated for a moment, in smiling perplexity. "'While you suffer their presence gladly in your midst.' he finished, displaying a dimple on each clean-shaven cheek. Then he added more gravely, "'I may even say, because you do.' When Mr. Vladimir ceased speaking, the Assistant Commissioner lowered his glance, and the conversation dropped. Almost immediately afterwards Mr. Vladimir took leave. Directly his back was turned on the couch, the Assistant Commissioner rose too. "'I thought you were going to stay and take Annie home.' said the lady patroness of Michaelis. "'I find that I've yet a little work to do to-night.' "'In connection?' "'Well, yes, in a way.' "'Tell me, what is it really, this horror?' "'It's difficult to say what it is, but it may yet be a cause célèbre,' said the assistant commissioner. He left the drawing-room hurriedly, and found Mr. Vladimir still in the hall, wrapping up his throat carefully in a large silk handkerchief. Behind him a footman waited, holding his overcoat. Another stood ready to open the door. The assistant commissioner was duly helped into his coat, and let out at once. After descending the front steps he stopped, as if to consider the way he should take. On seeing this through the door held open, Mr. Vladimir lingered in the hall to get out a cigar, and asked for a light. It was furnished to him by an elderly man out of livery, with an air of calm solicitude. But the match went out. The footman then closed the door, and Mr. Vladimir lighted his large Havana with leisurely care. When at last he got out of the house, he saw with disgust the confounded policeman still standing on the pavement. "'Can he be waiting for me?' thought Mr. Vladimir, looking up and down for some signs of a hansom. He saw none. A couple of carriages waited by the curbstone, their lamps blazing steadily, the horses standing perfectly still, as if carved in stone, the coachman sitting motionless under the big fur capes, without as much as a quiver stirring the white thongs of their big whips. Mr. Vladimir walked on, and the confounded policeman fell into step at his elbow. He said nothing. At the end of the fourth stride Mr. Vladimir felt infuriated and uneasy. This could not last. "'Rotten weather,' he growled savagely. "'Mild,' said the Assistant Commissioner, without passion. He remained silent for a little while. "'We've got hold of a man called Verloc,' he announced casually. Mr. Vladimir did not stumble, did not stagger back, did not change his stride. But he could not prevent himself from exclaiming, "'What?' The Assistant Commissioner did not repeat his statement. "'You know him,' he went on in the same tone. Mr. Vladimir stopped, and became guttural. "'What makes you say that?' "'I don't. It's Verloc who says that,' 
a lying dog of some sort," said Mr. Vladimir, in somewhat oriental phraseology. But in his heart he was almost awed by the miraculous cleverness of the English police. The change of his opinion on the subject was so violent that it made him for a moment feel slightly sick. He threw away his cigar and moved on. "'What pleased me most in this affair,' the assistant went on, talking slowly, "'is that it makes such an excellent starting-point for a piece of work which I felt must be taken in hand—that is, the clearing out of this country of all the foreign political spies, police, and that sort of—of dogs. In my opinion they are a ghastly nuisance, also an element of danger. But we can't very well seek them out individually. The only way is to make their employment unpleasant to their employers. The thing's becoming indecent. And dangerous, too, for us here." Mr. Vladimir stopped again for a moment. "'What do you mean?' "'The prosecution of this Verloc will demonstrate to the public both the danger and the indecency.' "'Nobody will believe what a man of that sort says,' said Mr. Vladimir contemptuously. The wealth and precision of detail will carry conviction to the great mass of the public," advanced the Assistant Commissioner gently. "'So that is seriously what you mean to do?' "'We've got the man. We have no choice.' "'You will only be feeding up the lying spirit of these revolutionary scoundrels,' Mr. Vladimir protested. "'What do you want to make a scandal for? From morality, or what?' Mr. Vladimir's anxiety was obvious. The Assistant Commissioner having ascertained in this way that there must be some truth in the summary statements of Mr. Verloc, said indifferently, "'There's a practical side, too. We have really enough to do to look after the genuine article. You can't say we are not effective. But we don't intend to let ourselves be bothered by shams under any pretext whatever.' Mr. Vladimir's tone became lofty. "'For my part I can't share your view. It is selfish. My sentiments for my own country cannot be doubted, but I've always felt that we ought to be good Europeans besides—I mean governments and men." Yes, said the Assistant Commissioner simply, only you look at Europe from its other end. But, he went on in a good-natured tone, the foreign governments cannot complain of the inefficiency of our police. Look at this outrage, a case specially difficult to trace inasmuch as it was a sham. In less than twelve hours we have established the identity of a man literally blown to shreds, have found the organiser of the attempt, and have had a glimpse of the inciter behind him. And we could have gone further, only we stopped at the limits of our territory." "'So this instructive crime was planned abroad,' Mr. Vladimir said quickly. "'You admit it was planned abroad?' "'Theoretically. Theoretically only on foreign territory. Abroad only by a fiction,' said the Assistant Commissioner alluding to the character of embassies, which are supposed to be part and parcel of the country to which they belong. But that's a detail. I talked to you of this business because it's your government that grumbles most at our police. You see that we are not so bad. I wanted particularly to tell you of our success." "'I'm sure I'm very grateful,' muttered Mr. Vladimir through his teeth. "'We can put our finger on every anarchist here,' went on the Assistant Commissioner as though he were quoting Chief Inspector Heat. All that's wanted now is to do away with the agent provocateur to make everything safe." Mr. Vladimir held up his hand to a passing hansom. "'You're not going in here,' remarked the Assistant Commissioner, looking at a building of noble proportions and hospitable aspect, with the light of a great hall falling through its glass doors on a broad flight of steps. 
but Mr. Vladimir, sitting stony-eyed inside the hansom, drove off without a word. The assistant commissioner himself did not turn into the noble building. It was the Explorers' Club. The thought passed through his mind that Mr. Vladimir, honorary member, would not be seen very often there in the future. He looked at his watch. It was only half-past ten. He had had a very full evening. End of section 10《Mr. Verloc's soul, if lacking greatness, perhaps, was capable of tender sentiments. The prospect of having to break the news to her had put him into a fever. Chief Inspector Heat had relieved him of the task. That was good, as far as it went. It remained for him now to face her grief. Mr. Verloc had never expected to have to face it on account of death whose catastrophic character cannot be argued away by sophisticated reasoning or persuasive eloquence. Mr. Verloc never meant Stevie to perish with such abrupt violence. He did not mean him to perish at all. Stevie dead was a much greater nuisance than ever he had been when alive. Mr. Verloc had augured a favourable issue to his enterprise, basing himself not on Stevie's intelligence, which sometimes plays queer tricks with a man, but on the blind docility, and on the blind devotion of the boy. Though not much of a psychologist, Mr. Verloc had gauged the depth of Stevie's fanaticism. He dared cherish the hope of Stevie walking away from the walls of the observatory, as he had been instructed to do, taking the way shown to him several times previously, and rejoining his brother-in-law, the wise and good Mr. Verloc, outside the precincts of the park. Fifteen minutes ought to have been enough for the veriest fool to deposit the engine and walk away, and the Professor had guaranteed more than fifteen minutes. But Stevie had stumbled within five minutes of being left to himself. And Mr. Verloc was shaken morally to pieces. He had foreseen everything but that. He had foreseen Stevie distracted and lost, sought for, found in some police station or provincial workhouse in the end. He had foreseen Stevie arrested, and was not afraid, because Mr. Verloc had a great opinion of Stevie's loyalty, which had been carefully indoctrinated with the necessity of silence in the course of many walks. Like a peripatetic philosopher, Mr. Verloc, strolling along the streets of London, had modified Stevie's view of the police by conversations full of subtle reasonings. Never had a sage a more attentive and admiring disciple. The submission and worship were so apparent that Mr. Verloc had come to feel something like a liking for the boy. In any case, he had not foreseen the swift bringing home of his connection. That his wife should hit upon the precaution of sewing the boy's address inside his overcoat was the last thing Mr. Verloc would have thought of. One can't think of everything. That was what she meant when she said that he need not worry if he lost Stevie during their walks. She had assured him that the boy would turn up all right. 
well, he had turned up with a vengeance. "'Well, well,' muttered Mr. Verloc in his wonder. "'What did she mean by it? Spare him the trouble of keeping an anxious eye on Stevie. Most likely she had meant well. Only she ought to have told him of the precaution she had taken. Mr. Verloc walked behind the counter of the shop. His intention was not to overwhelm his wife with bitter reproaches. Mr. Verloc felt no bitterness. The unexpected march of events had converted him to the doctrine of fatalism. Nothing could be helped now. He said, "'I didn't mean any harm to come to the boy.' Mrs. Verloc shuddered at the sound of her husband's voice. She did not uncover her face. The trusted secret agent of the late Baron Stott-Wartenheim looked at her for a time with a heavy, persistent, undiscerning glance. The torn evening paper was lying at her feet. It could not have told her much. Mr. Verloc felt the need of talking to his wife. "'It's that damned heat, eh?' he said. "'He upset you. He's a brute, blurting it out like this to a woman. I made myself ill thinking how to break it to you. I sat for hours in the little parlour of Cheshire Cheese, thinking over the best way. You understood I never meant any harm to come to that boy." Mr. Verloc, the secret agent, was speaking the truth. It was his marital affection that had received the greatest shock from the premature explosion. He added, "'I didn't feel particularly gay sitting there and thinking of you.' He observed another slight shudder of his wife, which affected his sensibility. As she persisted in hiding her face in her hands, he thought he had better leave her alone for a while. On this delicate impulse, Mr. Verloc withdrew into the parlour again, where the gas-jet purred like a contented cat. Mrs. Verloc's wifely forethought had left the cold beef on the table, with carving-knife and fork and half a loaf of bread for Mr. Verloc's supper. He noticed all these things now for the first time, and cutting himself a piece of bread and meat, began to eat. His appetite did not proceed from callousness. Mr. Verloc had not eaten any breakfast that day. He had left his home fasting. Not being an energetic man, he found his resolution in nervous excitement, which seemed to hold him mainly by the throat. He could not have swallowed anything solid. Michaelis's cottage was as destitute of provisions as the cell of a prisoner. The ticket-of-leave apostle lived on a little milk and crusts of stale bread. Moreover, when Mr. Verloc arrived, he had already gone upstairs after his frugal meal. Absorbed in the toil and delight of literary composition, he had not even answered Mr. Verloc's shout up the little staircase, "'I am taking this young fellow home for a day or two. And in truth Mr. Verloc did not wait for an answer, but had marched out of the cottage at once, followed by the obedient Stevie. Now that all action was over, and his fate taken out of his hands with unexpected swiftness, Mr. Verloc felt terribly empty physically. He carved the meat, cut the bread, and devoured his supper standing by the table, and now and then casting a glance towards his wife. Her prolonged immobility disturbed the comfort of his reflection. He walked again into the shop and came up very close to her. This sorrow with a veiled face made Mr. Verloc uneasy. He expected, of course, his wife to be very much upset, but he wanted her to pull herself together. 
he needed all her assistance and all her loyalty in these new conjectures his fatalism had already accepted. "'Can't be helped,' he said, in a tone of gloomy sympathy. "'Come, Winnie, we've got to think of to-morrow. You'll want all your wits about you after I am taken away.' He paused. Mrs. Verloc's breast heaved convulsively. This was not reassuring to Mr. Verloc, in whose view the newly created situation required from the two people most concerned in it calmness, decision, and other qualities incompatible with the mental disorder of passionate sorrow. Mr. Verloc was a humane man. He had come home prepared to allow every latitude to his wife's affection for her brother. Only he did not understand either the nature or the whole extent of that sentiment. And in this he was excusable, since it was impossible for him to understand it without ceasing to be himself. He was startled and disappointed, and his speech conveyed it by a certain roughness of tone. "'You might look at a fellow,' he observed, after waiting a while. As if forced through the hands covering Mrs. Verloc's face, the answer came, deadened, almost pitiful. "'I don't want to look at you as long as I live.' "'Eh? What?' Mr. Verloc was merely startled by the superficial and literal meaning of this declaration. It was obviously unreasonable, the mere cry of exaggerated grief. He threw over it the mantle of his marital indulgence. The mind of Mr. Verloc lacked profundity. Under the mistaken impression that the value of individuals consists in what they are in themselves, he could not possibly comprehend the value of Stevie in the eyes of Mrs. Verloc. She was taking it confoundedly hard, he thought to himself. It was all the fault of that damned heat. What did he want to upset the woman for? But she mustn't be allowed, for her own good, to carry on so till she got quite beside herself. "'Look here, you can't sit like this in the shop,' he said, with affected severity, in which there was some real annoyance, for urgent practical matters must be talked over if they had to sit up all night. "'Somebody might come in at any minute,' he added, and waited again. No effect was produced, and the idea of the finality of death occurred to Mr. Verloc during the pause. He changed his tone. "'Come, this won't bring him back,' he said gently, feeling ready to take her in his arms and press her to his breast, where impatience and compassion dwelt side by side. But except for a short shudder, Mrs. Verloc remained apparently unaffected by the force of that terrible truism. It was Mr. Verloc himself who was moved. He was moved in his simplicity to urge moderation by asserting the claims of his own personality. "'Do be reasonable, Winnie. What would it have been if you had lost me?' He had vaguely expected to hear her cry out. But she did not budge. She leaned back a little quieted down to a complete unreadable stillness. Mr. Verloc's heart began to beat faster with exasperation and something resembling alarm. He laid his hand on her shoulder, saying, "'Don't be a fool, Winnie.' She gave no sign. It was impossible to talk to any purpose with a woman whose face one cannot see. Mr. Verloc caught hold of his wife's wrists. But her hands seemed glued fast. She swayed forward bodily to his tug, and nearly went off the chair. Startled to feel her so helplessly limp, he was trying to put her back on the chair, when she stiffened suddenly all over, tore herself out of his hands, 
ran out of the shop, across the parlour and into the kitchen. This was very swift. He had just a glimpse of her face, and that much of her eyes that he knew she had not looked at him. It had all the appearance of a struggle for the possession of a chair, because Mr. Verloc instantly took his wife's place in it. Mr. Verloc did not cover his face with his hands, but a sombre thoughtfulness veiled his features. A term of imprisonment could not be avoided. He did not wish now to avoid it. A prison was a place as safe from certain unlawful vengeances as the grave, with this advantage, that in a prison there is room for hope. What he saw before him was a term of imprisonment, an early release, and then life abroad somewhere, such as he had contemplated already, in case of failure. Well, it was a failure, if not exactly the sort of failure he had feared. It had been so near success that he could have positively terrified Mr. Vladimir out of his ferocious scoffing, with this proof of occult efficiency. So at least it seemed now to Mr. Verloc. His prestige with the Embassy would have been immense if— if his wife had not had the unlucky notion of sewing on the address inside Stevie's overcoat. Mr. Verloc, who was no fool, had soon perceived the extraordinary character of the influence he had over Stevie, though he did not understand exactly its origin—the doctrine of his supreme wisdom and goodness inculcated by two anxious women. In all the eventualities he had foreseen, Mr. Verloc had calculated with correct insight on Stevie's instinctive loyalty and blind discretion. The eventuality he had not foreseen had appalled him as a humane man and a fond husband. From every other point of view it was rather advantageous. Nothing can equal the everlasting discretion of death. Mr. Verloc, sitting perplexed and frightened in the small parlour of the Cheshire Cheese, could not help acknowledging that to himself because his sensibility did not stand in the way of his judgment. Stevie's violent disintegration, however disturbing to think about, only assured the success, for of course the knocking down of a wall was not the aim of Mr. Vladimir's menaces, but the production of a moral effect. With much trouble and distress on Mr. Verloc's part, the effect might be said to have been produced. When, however, most unexpectedly, it came home to roost in Brett Street. Mr. Verloc, who had been struggling like a man in a nightmare for the preservation of his position, accepted the blow in the spirit of a convinced fatalist. The position was gone through no one's fault, really. A small, tiny fact had done it. It was like slipping on a bit of orange peel in the dark and breaking your leg. Mr. Verloc drew a weary breath. He nourished no resentment against his wife. He thought, she will have to look after the shop while they keep me locked up. And thinking also how cruelly she would miss Stevie at first, he felt greatly concerned about her health and spirits. How would she stand her solitude, absolutely alone in that house? It would not do for her to break down while he was locked up. What would become of the shop, then? The shop was an asset. Though Mr. Verloc's fatalism accepted his undoing as a secret agent, he had no mind to be utterly ruined, mostly, it must be owned, from regard for his wife. Silent, and out of his line of sight in the kitchen, she frightened him. If only she had had her mother with her! But that silly old woman! 
an angry dismay possessed Mr. Verloc. He must talk with his wife. He could tell her certainly that a man does get desperate under certain circumstances. But he did not go incontinently to impart to her that information. First of all, it was clear to him that this evening was no time for business. He got up to close the street door and put out the gas in the shop. Having thus assured a solitude around his hearthstone, Mr. Verloc walked into the parlour and glanced down into the kitchen. Mrs. Verloc was sitting in the place where poor Stevie usually established himself of an evening, with paper and pencil for the pastime of drawing these coruscations of innumerable circles suggesting chaos and eternity. Her arms were folded on the table, and her head was lying on her arms. Mr. Verloc contemplated her back and the arrangement of her hair for a time, then walked away from the kitchen door. Mrs. Verloc's philosophical, almost disdainful incuriosity, the foundation of their accord in domestic life, made it extremely difficult to get into contact with her, now this tragic necessity had arisen. Mr. Verloc felt this difficulty acutely. He turned around the table in the parlour with his usual air of a large animal in a cage. Curiosity being one of the forms of self-revelation, a systematically incurious person remains always partly mysterious. Every time he passed near the door, Mr. Verloc glanced at his wife uneasily. It was not that he was afraid of her. Mr. Verloc imagined himself loved by that woman. But she had not accustomed him to make confidences. And the confidence he had to make was of a profound psychological order. How, with his want of practice, could he tell her what he himself felt but vaguely, that there are conspiracies of fatal destiny, that a notion grows in a mind sometimes till it acquires an outward existence, an independent power of its own, and even a suggestive voice? He could not inform her that a man may be haunted by a fat, witty, clean-shaved face, till the wildest expedient to get rid of it appears a child of wisdom. On this mental reference to a first secretary of a great embassy, Mr. Verloc stopped in the doorway, and looking down into the kitchen with an angry face and clenched fists, addressed his wife. "'You don't know what a brute I had to deal with.' He started off to make another perambulation of the table. Then, when he had come to the door again, he stopped, glaring in from the height of two steps. "'A silly, jeering, dangerous brute, with no more sense than—' After all these years, a man like me, and I've been playing my head at that game. You didn't know. Quite right, too. What was the good of telling you that I stood the risk of having a knife stuck into me any time these seven years we've been married? I am not a chap to worry a woman that's fond of me. You had no business to know." Mr. Verloc took another turn round the parlour, fuming. "'A venomous beast,' he began again from the doorway drive me out into a ditch to starve for a joke. I could see he thought it was a damned good joke. A man like me. Look here. Some of the highest in the world got me to thank for walking on their two legs to this day. That's the man you've got married to, my girl." He perceived that his wife had sat up. Mrs. Verloc's arms remained lying stretched on the table. Mr. Verloc watched at her back, as if he could read there the effect of his words. There isn't a murdering plot for the last eleven years that I haven't had my finger in, at the risk of my life. There's scores of these revolutionists I've sent off, with their bombs in their blamed pockets, 
to get themselves caught on the frontier. The old baron knew what I was worth to his country. And here suddenly a swine comes along, an ignorant, overbearing swine." Mr. Verloc, stepping slowly down two steps, entered the kitchen, took a tumbler off the dresser, and holding it in his hand, approached the sink, without looking at his wife. It wasn't the old baron who would have had the wicked folly of getting me to call on him at eleven in the morning. There were two or three in this town that, if they had seen me going in, would have made no bones about knocking me on the head sooner or later. It was a silly, murderous trick to expose for nothing a man like me." Mr. Verloc, turning on the tap above the sink, poured three glasses of water, one after another, down his throat, to quench the fires of his indignation. Mr. Vladimir's conduct was like a hot brand which set his internal economy in a blaze. He could not get over the disloyalty of it. This man, who would not work at the usual hard tasks which society sets to its humbler members, had exercised his secret industry with an indefatigable devotion. There was in Mr. Verloc a fund of loyalty. He had been loyal to his employers, to the cause of social stability, and to his affections too as became apparent when, after standing the tumbler in the sink, he turned about, saying, "'If I hadn't thought of you, I would have taken the bullying brute by the throat and rammed his head into the fireplace. I'd have been more than a match for that pink-faced, smooth-shaved—' Mr. Verloc neglected to finish the sentence, as if there could be no doubt of the terminal word. For the first time in his life he was taking that incurious woman into his confidence. The singularity of the event— the force and importance of the personal feelings aroused in the course of this confession drove Stevie's fate clean out of Mr. Verloc's mind. The boy's stuttering existence of fears and indignations, together with the violence of his end, had passed out of Mr. Verloc's mental sight for a time. For that reason, when he looked up, he was startled by the inappropriate character of his wife's stare. It was not a wild stare, and it was not inattentive, but its attention was peculiar and not satisfactory, inasmuch that it seemed concentrated upon some point beyond Mr. Verloc's person. The impression was so strong that Mr. Verloc glanced over his shoulder. There was nothing behind him, there was just the whitewashed wall. The excellent husband of Winnie Verloc saw no writing on the wall. He turned to his wife again, repeating with some emphasis, "'I would have taken him by the throat.' As true as I stand here, if I hadn't thought of you then I would have half choked the life out of the brute before I let him get up. And don't you think he would have been anxious to call the police, either? He wouldn't have dared. You understand why, don't you?" He blinked at his wife knowingly. "'No,' said Mrs. Verloc in an unresonant voice, and without looking at him at all. "'What are you talking about?' A great discouragement. The result of fatigue came upon Mr. Verloc. He had had a very full day, and his nerves had been tried to the utmost. After a month of maddening worry, ending in an unexpected catastrophe, the storm-tossed spirit of Mr. Verloc longed for repose. His career as a secret agent had come to an end in a way no one could have foreseen. Only now, perhaps he could manage to get a night's sleep at last. But looking at his wife he doubted it. She was taking it very hard, not at all like herself, he thought. He made an effort to speak. "'You'll have to pull yourself together, my girl,' he said sympathetically. 
What's done can't be undone." Mrs. Verloc gave a slight start, though not a muscle of her white face moved in the least. Mr. Verloc, who was not looking at her, continued ponderously. "'You go to bed now. What you want is a good cry.' This opinion had nothing to recommend it but the general consent of mankind. It is universally understood that, as if it were nothing more substantial than vapour floating in the sky, every emotion of a woman is bound to end in a shower. And it is very probable that had Stevie died in his bed, under her despairing gaze, in her protecting arms, Mrs. Verloc's grief would have found relief in a flood of bitter and pure tears. Mrs. Verloc, in common with other human beings, was provided with a fund of unconscious resignation sufficient to meet the normal manifestation of human destiny. Without troubling her head about it, she was aware that it did not stand looking into very much. But the lamentable circumstances of Stevie's end, which to Mr. Verloc's mind had only an episodic character, as part of a greater disaster, dried her tears at their very source. It was the effect of a white-hot iron drawn across her eyes. At the same time her heart, hardened and chilled into a lump of ice, kept her body in an inward shudder, set her features into a frozen, contemplative immobility addressed to a whitewashed wall with no writing on it. The exigencies of Mrs. Verloc's temperament, which, when stripped of its philosophical reserve, was maternal and violent, forced her to roll a series of thoughts in her motionless head. These thoughts were rather imagined than expressed. Mrs. Verloc was a woman of singularly few words, either for public or private use. With the rage and dismay of a betrayed woman, she reviewed the tenor of her life in visions concerned mostly with Stevie's difficult existence from its earliest days. It was a life of single purpose and of a noble unity of inspiration, like those rare lives that have left their mark on the thoughts and feelings of mankind. But the visions of Mrs. Verloc lacked nobility and magnificence. She saw herself putting the boy to bed by the light of a single candle, on the deserted top floor of a business-house, dark under the roof and scintillating exceedingly with lights and cut glass at the level of the street like a fairy palace. That meretricious splendour was the only one to be met in Mrs. Verloc's visions. She remembered brushing the boy's hair and tying his pinafores, herself in a pinafore still. The consolations administered to a small and badly scared creature, by another creature nearly as small but not quite so badly scared. She had the vision of the blows intercepted, often with her own head, of a door held desperately shut against a man's rage, not for very long, of a poker flung once, not very far, which stilled that particular storm into the dumb and awful silence which follows a thunderclap. And all these scenes of violence came and went accompanied by the unrefined noise of deep vociferations, proceeding from a man wounded in his paternal pride, declaring himself obviously accursed, since one of his kids was a slobbering Egypt, and the other one a wicked she-devil. It was of her that this had been said many years ago. Mrs. Verloc heard the words again in a ghostly fashion, and then the dreary shadow of the Belgravian mansion descended upon her shoulders. It was a crushing memory, an exhausting vision of countless breakfast-trays carried up and down innumerable stairs, of endless haggling over pence, of the endless drudgery of sweeping, dusting, cleaning, 
from basement to attics, while the impotent mother, staggering on swollen legs, cooked in a grimy kitchen, and poor Stevie, the unconscious presiding genius of all their toil, blacked the gentleman's boots in the scullery. But this vision had a breath of a hot London summer in it, and for a central figure a young man wearing his Sunday best, with a straw hat on his dark head and a wooden pipe in his mouth. Affectionate and jolly, he was a fascinating companion for a voyage down the sparkling stream of life, only his boat was very small. There was room in it for a girl partner at the oar, but no accommodation for passengers. He was allowed to drift away from the threshold of the Belgravian mansion, while Winnie averted her tearful eyes. He was not a lodger. The lodger was Mr. Verloc, indolent and keeping late hours, sleepily jocular of a morning from under his bedclothes, but with gleams of infatuation in his heavy-lidded eyes, and always with some money in his pockets. There was no sparkle of any kind on the lazy stream of his life. It flowed through secret places. But his bark seemed a roomy craft, and his taciturn magnanimity accepted as a matter of course the presence of passengers. Mrs. Verloc pursued the visions of seven years' security for Stevie, loyally paid for on her part, of security growing into confidence, into a domestic feeling, stagnant and deep like a placid pool, whose guarded surface hardly shuddered on the occasional passage of Comrade Ossipon, the robust anarchist with shamelessly inviting eyes, whose glance had a corrupt clearness sufficient to enlighten any woman not absolutely imbecile. A few seconds only had elapsed since the last word had been uttered aloud in the kitchen, and Mrs. Verloc was staring already at the vision of an episode not more than a fortnight old. With eyes whose pupils were extremely dilated, she stared at the vision of her husband and poor Stevie, walking up Brett Street side by side away from the shop. It was the last scene of an existence created by Mrs. Verloc's genius, an existence foreign to all grace and charm, without beauty and almost without decency, but admirable in the continuity of feeling and tenacity of purpose. And this last vision had such plastic relief, such nearness of form, such a fidelity of suggestive detail, that it wrung from Mrs. Verloc an anguished and faint murmur, reproducing the supreme illusion of her life, an appalled murmur that died out on her blanched lips. Might have been father and son. Mr. Verloc stopped and raised a careworn face. "'Eh? What did you say?' he asked. Receiving no reply, he resumed his sinister tramping. Then, with a menacing flourish of a thick, fleshy fist, he burst out. "'Yes, the Embassy people. A pretty lot, ain't they? Before a week's out I'll make some of them wish themselves twenty feet underground. Eh, what?' He glanced sideways with his head down. Mrs. Verloc gazed at the whitewashed wall. A blank wall, perfectly blank. A blankness to run at and dash your head against. Mrs. Verloc remained immovably seated. She kept still as the population of half the globe would keep still, in astonishment and despair, were the sun suddenly put out in the summer sky by the perfidy of a trusted providence. "'The Embassy,' Mr. Verloc began again, 
after a preliminary grimace which bared his teeth wolfishly. "'I wish I could get loose in there with a cudgel for half an hour. I would keep on hitting till there wasn't a single unbroken bone left amongst the lot. But never mind. I'll teach them yet what it means trying to throw out a man like me to rot in the streets. I've a tongue in my head. All the world shall know what I've done for them. I am not afraid. I don't care. Everything'll come out. Every damned thing. Let them look out." In these terms did Mr. Verloc declare his thirst for revenge. It was a very appropriate revenge. It was in harmony with the promptings of Mr. Verloc's genius. It had also the advantage of being within the range of his powers, and of adjusting itself easily to the practice of his life, which had consisted precisely in betraying the secret and unlawful proceedings of his fellow-men. Anarchists or diplomats were all one to him. Mr. Verloc was temperamentally no respecter of persons. His scorn was equally distributed over the whole field of his operations. But as a member of a revolutionary proletariat, which he undoubtedly was, he nourished a rather inimical sentiment against social distinction. "'Nothing on earth can stop me now,' he added, and paused, looking fixedly at his wife, who was looking fixedly at a blank wall. The silence in the kitchen was prolonged, and Mr. Verloc felt disappointed. He had expected his wife to say something. But Mrs. Verloc's lips, composed in their usual form, preserved a statuesque immobility like the rest of her face. And Mr. Verloc was disappointed. Yet the occasion did not, he recognised, demand speech from her. She was a woman of very few words. For reasons involved in the very foundation of his psychology, Mr. Verloc was inclined to put his trust in any woman who had given herself to him. Therefore he trusted his wife. Their accord was perfect, but it was not precise. It was a tacit accord, congenial to Mrs. Verloc's incuriosity, and to Mr. Verloc's habits of mind which were indolent and secret. They refrained from going to the bottom of facts and motives. This reserve, expressing, in a way, their profound confidence in each other, introduced at the same time a certain element of vagueness into their intimacy. No system of conjugal relations is perfect. Mr. Verloc presumed that his wife had understood him, but he would have been glad to hear her say what she thought at the moment. It would have been a comfort. There were several reasons why this comfort was denied him. There was a physical obstacle. Mrs. Verloc had no sufficient command over her voice. She did not see any alternative between screaming and silence, and instinctively she chose the silence. Winnie Verloc was temperamentally a silent person. And there was the paralysing atrocity of the thought which occupied her. Her cheeks were blanched, her lips ashy, her immobility amazing. And she thought, without looking at Mr. Verloc, this man took the boy away to murder him. He took the boy away from his home to murder him. He took the boy away from me to murder him. Mrs. Verloc's whole being was racked by that inconclusive and maddening thought. It was in her veins, in her bones, in the roots of her hair. Mentally she assumed the biblical attitude of mourning, the covered face, the rent garments, the sound of wailing and lamentation filled her head. 
but her teeth were violently clenched, and her tearless eyes were hot with rage, because she was not a submissive creature. The protection she had extended over her brother had been in its origin of a fierce and indignant complexion. She had to love him with a militant love. She had battled for him, even against herself. His loss had the bitterness of defeat, with the anguish of a baffled passion. It was not an ordinary stroke of death. Moreover, it was not death that took Stevie from her. It was Mr. Verloc who took him away. She had seen him. She had watched him, without raising a hand, take the boy away. And she had let him go like, like a fool, a blind fool. Then, after he had murdered the boy, he came home to her. Just came home like any other man would come home to his wife. Through her set teeth Mrs. Verloc muttered at the wall. And I thought he had caught a cold. Mr. Verloc heard these words and appropriated them. "'It was nothing,' he said moodily. "'I was upset. I was upset on your account.' Mrs. Verloc, turning her head slowly, transferred her stare from the wall to her husband's person. Mr. Verloc, with the tips of his fingers between his lips, was looking on the ground. "'Can't be helped,' he mumbled, letting his hand fall. You must pull yourself together. You'll want all your wits about you. It is you who brought the police about our ears. Never mind, I won't say anything more about it," continued Mr. Verloc magnanimously. You couldn't know. I couldn't, breathed out Mrs. Verloc. It was as if a corpse had spoken. Mr. Verloc took up the thread of his discourse. I don't blame you. I'll make them sit up. Once under lock and key it will be safe enough for me to talk, you understand. You must reckon on me being two years away from you," he continued, in a tone of sincere concern. It will be easier for you than for me. You'll have something to do, while I— Look here, Winnie, what you must do is to keep this business going for two years. You know enough for that. You've a good head on you. I'll send you word when it's time to go about trying to sell. You'll have to be extra careful. The comrades will be keeping an eye on you all the time. You'll have to be as artful as you know how, and as close as the grave. No one must find out what you are going to do. I have no mind to get a knock on the head or a stab in the back directly I am let out." Thus spoke Mr. Verloc, applying his mind with ingenuity and forethought to the problems of the future. His voice was sombre, because he had a correct sentiment of the situation. Everything which he did not wish to pass had come to pass. The future had become precarious. His judgment, perhaps, had been momentarily obscured by his dread of Mr. Vladimir's truculent folly. A man somewhat over forty may be excusably thrown into considerable disorder by the prospect of losing his employment, especially if the man is a secret agent of political police, dwelling secure in the consciousness of his high value, and in the esteem of high personages. He was excusable. Now the thing had ended in a crash. Mr. Verloc was cool, but he was not cheerful. A secret agent who throws his secrecy to the winds from desire of vengeance, and flaunts his achievements before the public eye, becomes the mark for desperate and bloodthirsty indignations. 
without unduly exaggerating the danger, Mr. Verloc tried to bring it clearly before his wife's mind. He repeated that he had no intention to let the revolutionists do away with him. He looked straight into his wife's eyes. The enlarged pupils of the woman received his stare into their unfathomable depths. "'I am too fond of you for that,' he said, with a little nervous laugh. A faint flush coloured Mrs. Verloc's ghastly and motionless face. Having done with the visions of the past, she had not only heard, but had also understood the words uttered by her husband. By their extreme disaccord with her mental condition, these words produced on her a slightly suffocating effect. Mrs. Verloc's mental condition had the merit of simplicity, but it was not sound. It was governed too much by a fixed idea. Every nook and cranny of her brain was filled with the thought that this man, with whom she had lived without distaste for seven years, had taken the poor boy away from her in order to kill him, the man to whom she had grown accustomed in body and mind, the man whom she had trusted, took the boy away to kill him. In its form, in its substance, in its effect, which was universal, altering even the aspect of inanimate things, it was a thought to sit still and marvel at for ever and ever. Mrs. Verloc sat still. And across that thought—not across the kitchen—the form of Mr. Verloc went to and fro, familiarly in hat and overcoat, stamping with his boots upon her brain. He was probably talking, too, but Mrs. Verloc's thought for the most part covered the voice. Now and then, however, the voice would make itself heard. Several connected words emerged at times. Their purport was generally hopeful. On each of these occasions, Mrs. Verloc's dilated pupils, losing their far-off fixity, followed her husband's movements with the effect of black care and impenetrable attention. Well informed upon all matters relating to his secret calling, Mr. Verloc augured well for the success of his plans and combinations. He really believed that it would be, upon the whole, easy for him to escape the knife of infuriated revolutionists. He had exaggerated the strength of their fury and the length of their arm, for professional purposes, too often to have many illusions one way or the other. For to exaggerate with judgment, one must begin by measuring with nicety. He knew also how much virtue, and how much infamy is forgotten in two years—two long years. His first really confidential discourse to his wife was optimistic from conviction. He also thought it good policy to display all the assurance he could muster. It would put heart into the poor woman. On his liberation, which, harmonising with the whole tenor of his life, would be secret, of course, they would vanish together without loss of time. As to covering up the tracks, he begged his wife to trust him for that. He knew how it was to be done so that the devil himself. He waved his hand. He seemed to boast. He wished only to put heart into her. It was a benevolent intention, but Mr. Verloc had the misfortune not to be in accord with his audience. The self-confident tone grew upon Mrs. Verloc's ear, which let most of the words go by. For what were words to her now? What could words do to her, for good or evil in the face of her fixed idea? 
Her black glance followed that man who was asserting his impunity, the man who had taken poor Stevie from home to kill him somewhere. Mrs. Verloc could not remember exactly where, but her heart began to beat very perceptibly. Mr. Verloc, in a soft and conjugal tone, was now expressing his firm belief that there were yet a good few years of quiet life before them both. He did not go into the question of means. A quiet life it must be, and, as it were, nestling in the shade, concealed among men whose flesh is grass, modest like the life of violets. The words used by Mr. Verloc were, "'Lie low for a bit.' And far from England, of course. It was not clear whether Mr. Verloc had in his mind Spain or South America, but at any rate somewhere abroad. This last word, falling into Mrs. Verloc's ear, produced a definite impression. This man was talking of going abroad. The impression was completely disconnected, and such is the force of mental habit that Mrs. Verloc at once and automatically asked herself, And what of Stevie? It was a sort of forgetfulness, but instantly she became aware that there was no longer any occasion for anxiety on that score. There would never be any occasion any more. The poor boy had been taken out and killed. The poor boy was dead. This shaking piece of forgetfulness stimulated Mrs. Verloc's intelligence. She began to perceive certain consequences which would have surprised Mr. Verloc. There was no need for her now to stay there, in that kitchen, in that house, with that man, since the boy was gone for ever. No need whatever. And on that Mrs. Verloc rose as if raised by a spring. But neither could she see what there was to keep her in the world at all. And this inability arrested her. Mr. Verloc watched her with marital solicitude. "'You're looking more like yourself,' he said uneasily. Something peculiar in the blackness of his wife's eyes disturbed his optimism. At that precise moment Mrs. Verloc began to look upon herself as released from all earthly ties. She had her freedom. Her contract with existence, as represented by that man standing over there, was at an end. She was a free woman. Had this view become in some way perceptible to Mr. Verloc, he would have been extremely shocked. In his affairs of the heart Mr. Verloc had always been carelessly generous, yet always with no other idea than that of being loved for himself. Upon this matter, his ethical notions being in agreement with his vanity, he was completely incorrigible. That this should be so in the case of his virtuous and legal connection he was perfectly certain. He had grown older, fatter, heavier, in the belief that he lacked no fascination for being loved for his own sake. When he saw Mrs. Verloc starting to walk out of the kitchen without a word, he was disappointed. "'Where are you going to?' he called out rather sharply. "'Upstairs?' Mrs. Verloc in the doorway turned at the voice. An instinct of prudence born of fear—the excessive fear of being approached and touched by that man—induced her to nod at him slightly, from the height of two steps, with a stir of the lips which the conjugal optimism of Mr. Verloc took for a wan and uncertain smile. "'That's right,' he encouraged her gruffly. 
Rest and quiet's what you want. Go on. It won't be long before I am with you." Mrs. Verloc, the free woman who had had really no idea where she was going to, obeyed the suggestion with rigid steadiness. End of section 11 Section 12 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 11, Part 2. Mr. Verloc watched her. She disappeared up the stairs. He was disappointed. There was that within him which would have been more satisfied if she had been moved to throw herself upon his breast. But he was generous and indulgent. Winnie was always undemonstrative and silent. Neither was Mr. Verloc himself prodigal of endearments and words as a rule. But this was not an ordinary evening. It was an occasion when a man wants to be fortified and strengthened by open proofs of sympathy and affection. Mr. Verloc sighed and put out the gas in the kitchen. Mr. Verloc's sympathy with his wife was genuine and intense. It almost brought tears into his eyes as he stood in the parlour, reflecting on the loneliness hanging over her head. In this mood Mr. Verloc missed Stevie very much out of a difficult world. He thought mournfully of his end. If only that lad had not stupidly destroyed himself! The sensation of unappeasable hunger, not unknown after the strain of a hazardous enterprise to adventurers of tougher fibre than Mr. Verloc, overcame him again. The piece of roast beef, laid out in the likeness of funereal baked meats for Stevie's obsequies, offered itself largely to his notice. And Mr. Verloc again partook. He partook ravenously, without restraint and decency, cutting thick slices with the sharp carving-knife, and swallowing them without bread. In the course of that refection it occurred to Mr. Verloc that he was not hearing his wife move about the bedroom as he should have done. The thought of finding her, perhaps, sitting on the bed in the dark, not only cut Mr. Verloc's appetite, but also took from him the inclination to follow her upstairs just yet. Laying down the carving-knife, Mr. Verloc listened with careworn attention. He was comforted by hearing her move at last. She walked suddenly across the room and threw the window up. After a period of stillness up there, during which he figured her to himself with her head out, he heard the sash being lowered slowly. Then she made a few steps and sat down. Every resonance of his house was familiar to Mr. Verloc, who was thoroughly domesticated. When next he heard his wife's footsteps overhead, he knew, as well as if he had seen her doing it, that she had been putting on her walking-shoes. Mr. Verloc wriggled his shoulders slightly at this ominous symptom, and, moving away from the table, stood with his back to the fireplace, his head on one side, and gnawing perplexedly at the tips of his fingers. He kept track of her movements by the sound. She walked here and there violently, with abrupt stoppages, now before the chest of drawers, then in front of the wardrobe. An immense load of weariness, the harvest of a day of shocks and surprises, weighed Mr. Verloc's energies to the ground. He did not raise his eyes till he heard his wife descending the stairs. It was as he had guessed. She was dressed for going out. 
Mrs. Verloc was a free woman. She had thrown open the window of the bedroom, either with the intention of screaming, murder, help, or of throwing herself out. For she did not exactly know what used to make of her freedom. Her personality seemed to have been torn into two pieces, whose mental operations did not adjust themselves very well to each other. The street, silent and deserted from end to end, repelled her by taking sides with that man who was so certain of his impunity. She was afraid to shout lest no one should come. Obviously no one would come. Her instinct of self-preservation recoiled from the depth of the fall into that sort of slimy, deep trench. Mrs. Verloc closed the window, and dressed herself to go out into the street by another way. She was a free woman. She had dressed herself thoroughly, down to the tying of a black veil over her face. As she appeared to him in the light of the parlour, Mr. Verloc observed that she had even her little handbag hanging from her left wrist. Flying off to her mother, of course. The thought that women were wearisome creatures after all presented itself to his fatigued brain. But he was too generous to harbour it for more than an instant. This man, hurt cruelly in his vanity, remained magnanimous in his conduct, allowing himself no satisfaction of a bitter smile or of a contemptuous gesture. With true greatness of soul he only glanced at the wooden clock on the wall, and said in a perfectly calm but forcible manner, Five and twenty minutes past eight, Winnie. There's no sense in going over there so late. You will never manage to get back to-night." Before his extended hand Mrs. Verloc had stopped short. He added heavily, "'Your mother will be gone to bed before you get there. This is the sort of news that can wait.' Nothing was further from Mrs. Verloc's thoughts than going to her mother. She recoiled at the mere idea, and feeling a chair behind her, she obeyed the suggestion of the touch and sat down. Her intention had been simply to get outside the door for ever. And if this feeling was correct, its mental form took an unrefined shape corresponding to her origin and station. "'I would rather walk the streets all the days of my life,' she thought. But this creature, whose moral nature had been subjected to a shock of which, in the physical order, the most violent earthquake of history could only be a faint and languid rendering, was at the mercy of mere trifles, of casual contacts. She sat down. With her hat and veil she had the air of a visitor, having looked in on Mr. Verloc for a moment. Her instant docility encouraged him, while her aspect of only temporary and silent acquiescence provoked him a little. "'Let me tell you, Winnie,' he said with authority that your place is here this evening. Hang it all! You brought the damned police high and low about my ears. I don't blame you, but it's your doing all the same. You'd better take this confounded hat off. I can't let you go out, old girl," he added in a softened voice. Mrs. Verloc's mind got hold of that declaration with morbid tenacity. The man who had taken Stevie out from under her very eyes to murder him in a locality whose name was, at the moment, not present to her memory, would not allow her go out. Of course he wouldn't. Now he had murdered Stevie he would never let her go. He would want to keep her for nothing. And on this characteristic reasoning, having all the force of insane logic, Mrs. Verloc's disconnected wits went to work practically. She could slip by him 
open the door, run out. But he would dash out after her, seize her round the body, drag her back into the shop. She could scratch, kick and bite, and stab too, but for stabbing she wanted a knife. Mrs. Verloc sat still under her black veil, in her own house, like a masked and mysterious visitor of impenetrable intentions. Mr. Verloc's magnanimity was not more than human. She had exasperated him at last. "'Can't you say something? You have your own dodges for vexing a man. Oh, yes, I know your deaf and dumb trick. I've seen you at it before to-day. But just now it won't do. And to begin with, take this damned thing off. One can't tell whether one is talking to a dummy or to a live woman.' He advanced, and stretching out his hand, dragged the veil off, unmasking a still, unreadable face, against which his nervous exasperation was shattered, like a glass bubble flung against a rock. "'That's better,' he said, to cover his momentary uneasiness, and retreated back to his old station by the mantelpiece. It never entered his head that his wife could give him up. He felt a little ashamed of himself, for he was fond and generous. What could he do? Everything had been said already. He protested vehemently. "'By heavens! You know that I hunted high and low. I ran the risk of giving myself away to find somebody for that accursed job. And I tell you again, I couldn't find anyone crazy enough or hungry enough. What do you take me for? A murderer or what? The boy is gone. Do you think I wanted him to blow himself up? He's gone. His troubles are over. Ours are just going to begin, I tell you, precisely because he did blow himself. I don't blame you. But just try to understand that it was a pure accident, as much an accident as if he had been run over by a bus while crossing the street." His generosity was not infinite, because he was a human being, and not a monster, as Mrs. Verloc believed him to be. He paused, and a snarl lifting his moustaches above a gleam of white teeth gave him the expression of a reflective beast, not very dangerous, a slow beast with a sleek head gloomier than a seal, and with a husky voice. "'And when it comes to that, it's as much your doing as mine. That's so. You may glare as much as you like. I know what you can do in that way. Strike me dead if I ever would have thought of the lad for that purpose. It was you who kept on shoving him in my way when I was half distracted with the worry of keeping the lot of us out of trouble. What the devil made you? One would think you were doing it on purpose. And I am damned if I know that you didn't. There's no saying how much of what's going on you have got hold of on the sly with your infernal don't-care-a-damn way of looking nowhere in particular and saying nothing at all." His husky domestic voice ceased for a while. Mrs. Verloc made no reply. Before that silence he felt ashamed of what he had said. But, as often happens to peaceful men in domestic tiffs, being ashamed he pushed another point. "'You have a devilish way of holding your tongue sometimes,' he began again, without raising his voice. "'Enough to make some men go mad. It's lucky for you that I am not so easily put out as some of them would be by your deaf and dumb sulks. I am fond of you. But don't you go too far. This isn't the time for it. We ought to be thinking of what we've got to do. And I can't let you go out to-night, galloping off to your mother with some crazy tale or other about me. I won't have it.' Don't you make any mistake about it. If you will have it that I killed the boy, then you've killed him as much as I." 
In sincerity of feeling and openness of statement, these words went far beyond anything that had ever been said in this home, kept up on the wages of a secret industry, eked out by the sale of more or less secret wares, the poor expedients devised by a mediocre mankind for preserving an imperfect society from the dangers of moral and physical corruption, both secret too of their kind. They were spoken because Mr. Verloc had felt himself really outraged, but the reticent decencies of this home life, nestling in a shady street behind a shop where the sun never shone, remained apparently undisturbed. Mrs. Verloc heard him out with perfect propriety, and then rose from her chair in her hat and jacket like a visitor at the end of a call. She advanced towards her husband, one arm extended as if for a silent leave-taking. Her net veil dangling down by one end on the left side of her face gave an air of disorderly formality to her restrained movements. But when she arrived as far as the hearth-rug, Mr. Verloc was no longer standing there. He had moved off in the direction of the sofa, without raising his eyes to watch the effect of his tirade. He was tired, resigned in a truly marital spirit. But he felt hurt in the tender spot of his secret weakness. If she would go on sulking in that dreadful overcharged silence, why then she must. She was a master in that domestic art. Mr. Verloc flung himself heavily upon the sofa, disregarding as usual the fate of his hat, which, as if accustomed to take care of itself, made for a safe shelter under the table. He was tired. The last particle of his nervous force had been expended in the wonders and agonies of this day full of surprising failures, coming at the end of a harassing month of scheming and insomnia. He was tired. A man isn't made of stone. Hang everything. Mr. Verloc reposed characteristically, clad in his outdoor garments. One side of his open overcoat was lying partly on the ground. Mr. Verloc wallowed on his back. But he longed for a more perfect rest, for sleep, for a few hours of delicious forgetfulness. That would come later. Provisionally he rested. And he thought, I wish you would give over this damned nonsense. It's exasperating. There must have been something imperfect in Mrs. Verloc's sentiment of regained freedom. Instead of taking the way of the door she leaned back, with her shoulders against the tablet of the mantelpiece, as a wayfarer rests against a fence. A tinge of wildness in her aspect was derived from the black veil hanging like a rag against her cheek, and from the fixity of her black gaze, where the light of the room was absorbed and lost without the trace of a single gleam. This woman, capable of a bargain the mere suspicion of which would have been infinitely shocking to Mr. Verloc's idea of love, remained irresolute, as if scrupulously aware of something wanting on her part for the formal closing of the transaction. On the sofa Mr. Verloc wriggled his shoulders into perfect comfort, and from the fullness of his heart emitted a wish which was certainly as pious as anything likely to come from such a source. "'I wish to goodness,' he growled huskily. "'I had never seen Greenwich Park or anything belonging to it.' The veiled sound filled the small room with its moderate volume, well adapted to the moderate nature of the wish. The waves of air of the proper length, propagated in accordance with correct mathematical formulas, flowed around all the inanimate things in the room, 
lapped against Mrs. Verloc's head as if it had been a head of stone. And incredible as it may appear, the eyes of Mrs. Verloc seemed to grow still larger. The audible wish of Mr. Verloc's overflowing heart flowed into an empty place in his wife's memory. Greenwich Park. A park. That's where the boy was killed. A park. Smashed branches, torn leaves, gravel, bits of brotherly flesh and bone, all spouting up together in the manner of a firework. She remembered now what she had heard, and she remembered it pictorially. They had to gather him up with the shovel. Trembling all over with irrepressible shudders, she saw before her the very implement with its ghastly load scraped up from the ground. Mrs. Verloc closed her eyes desperately, throwing upon that vision the night of her eyelids, where, after a rain-like fall of mangled limbs, the decapitated head of Stevie lingered, suspended alone, and fading out slowly like the last star of a pyrotechnic display. Mrs. Verloc opened her eyes. Her face was no longer stony. Anybody could have noted the subtle change on her features, in the stare of her eyes, giving her a new and startling expression—an expression seldom observed by competent persons, under the conditions of leisure and security demanded for thorough analysis, but whose meaning could not be mistaken at a glance. Mrs. Verloc's doubts as to the end of the bargain no longer existed. Her wits, no longer disconnected, were working under the control of her will. But Mr. Verloc observed nothing. He was reposing in that pathetic condition of optimism induced by excess of fatigue. He did not want any more trouble, with his wife too, of all people in the world. He had been unanswerable in his vindication. He was loved for himself. The present phase of her silence he interpreted favourably. This was the time to make it up with her. The silence had lasted long enough. He broke it by calling to her in an undertone. "'Winnie?' "'Yes,' answered obediently Mrs. Verloc, the free woman. She commanded her wits now, her vocal organs. She felt herself to be in an almost preternaturally perfect control of every fibre of her body. It was all her own, because the bargain was at an end. She was clear-sighted. She had become cunning. She chose to answer him so readily for a purpose. She did not wish that man to change his position on the sofa, which was very suitable to the circumstances. She succeeded. The man did not stir. But, after answering him, she remained leaning negligently against the mantelpiece in the attitude of a resting wayfarer. She was unhurried. Her brow was smooth. The head and shoulders of Mr. Verloc were hidden from her by the high side of the sofa. She kept her eyes fixed on his feet. She remained thus mysteriously still and suddenly collected, till Mr. Verloc was heard with an accent of marital authority, and moving slightly to make room for her to sit on the edge of the sofa. "'Come here,' he said in a peculiar tone, which might have been the tone of brutality, but was intimately known to Mrs. Verloc as the note of wooing. She started forward at once, as if she were still a loyal woman bound to that man by an unbroken contract. Her right hand skimmed slightly the end of the table, and when she had passed on towards the sofa, 
the carving-knife had vanished without the slightest sound from the side of the dish. Mr. Verloc heard the creaky plank in the floor and was content. He waited. Mrs. Verloc was coming. As if the homeless soul of Stevie had flown for shelter straight to the breast of his sister, guardian and protector, the resemblance of her face with that of her brother grew at every step, even to the droop of the lower lip, even to the slight divergence of the eyes. But Mr. Verloc did not see that. He was lying on his back and staring upwards. He saw partly on the ceiling and partly on the wall the moving shadow of an arm with a clenched hand holding a carving-knife. It flickered up and down. Its movements were leisurely. They were leisurely enough for Mr. Verloc to recognise the limb and the weapon. They were leisurely enough for him to take in the full meaning of the portent, and to taste the flavour of death rising in his gorge. His wife had gone raving mad, murdering mad. They were leisurely enough for the first paralysing effect of this discovery to pass away before a resolute determination to come out victorious from the ghastly struggle with that armed lunatic. They were leisurely enough for Mr. Verloc to elaborate a plan of defence, involving a dash behind the table, and the felling of the woman to the ground with a heavy wooden chair. But they were not leisurely enough to allow Mr. Verloc the time to move either hand or foot. The knife was already planted in his breast. It met no resistance on its way. Hazard has such accuracies. Into that plunging blow, delivered over the side of the couch, Mrs. Verloc had put all the inheritance of her immemorial and obscure descent, the simple ferocity of the age of caverns, and the unbalanced nervous fury of the age of barrooms. Mr. Verloc, the secret agent, turning slightly on his side with the force of the blow, expired without stirring a limb, in the muttered sound of the word, Don't, by way of protest. Mrs. Verloc had let go the knife, and her extraordinary resemblance to her late brother had faded, had become very ordinary now. She drew a deep breath, the first easy breath since Chief Inspector Heat had exhibited to her the labelled piece of Stevie's overcoat. She leaned forward on her folded arms over the side of the sofa. She adopted that easy attitude, not in order to watch or gloat over the body of Mr. Verloc, but because of the undulatory and swinging movements of the parlour, which for some time behaved as though it were at sea in a tempest. She was giddy but calm. She had become a free woman with a perfection of freedom, which left her nothing to desire and absolutely nothing to do since Stevie's urgent claim on her devotion no longer existed. Mrs. Verloc, who thought in images, was not troubled now by visions, because she did not think at all. And she did not move. She was a woman enjoying her complete irresponsibility and endless leisure, almost in the manner of a corpse. She did not move, she did not think. Neither did the mortal envelope of the late Mr. Verloc reposing on the sofa. Except for the fact that Mrs. Verloc breathed, these two would have been perfect in accord—that accord of prudent reserve without superfluous words, and sparing of signs which had been the foundation of their respectable home life. For it had been respectable, covering by a decent reticence the problems that may arise in the practice of a secret profession and the commerce of shady wares. 
to the last its decorum had remained undisturbed by unseemly shrieks and other misplaced sincerities of conduct. And, after the striking of the blow, this respectability was continued in immobility and silence. Nothing moved in the parlour till Mrs. Verloc raised her head slowly and looked at the clock with inquiring mistrust. She had become aware of a ticking sound in the room. It grew upon her ear, while she remembered clearly that the clock on the wall was silent, had no audible tick. What did it mean by beginning to tick so loudly all of a sudden? Its face indicated ten minutes to nine. Mrs. Verloc cared nothing for time, and the ticking went on. She concluded it could not be the clock, and her sullen gaze moved along the walls, wavered and became vague, while she strained her hearing to locate the sound. Tick. 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 After listening for some time, Mrs. Verloc lowered her gaze deliberately on her husband's body. Its attitude of repose was so homelike and familiar that she could do so without feeling embarrassed by any pronounced novelty in the phenomena of her home-life. Mr. Verloc was taking his habitual ease. He looked comfortable. By the position of the body, the face of Mr. Verloc was not visible to Mrs. Verloc, his widow. Her fine, sleepy eyes, travelling downward on the track of the sound, became contemplative on meeting a flat object of bone which protruded a little beyond the edge of the sofa. It was the handle of the domestic carving-knife, with nothing strange about it but its position at right angles to Mr. Verloc's waistcoat, and the fact that something dripped from it. Dark drops fell on the floor-cloth one after another, with a sound of ticking growing fast and furious like the pulse of an insane clock. At its highest speed this ticking changed into a continuous sound of trickling. Mrs. Verloc watched that transformation with shadows of anxiety coming and going on her face. It was a trickle—dark, swift, thin—blood! At this unforeseen circumstance Mrs. Verloc abandoned her pose of idleness and irresponsibility. With a sudden snatch at her skirts and a faint shriek, she ran to the door, as if the trickle had been the first sign of a destroying flood. Finding the table in her way, she gave it a push with both hands as though it had been alive, with such force that it went for some distance on its four legs, making a loud scraping racket, whilst the big dish with the joint crashed heavily on the floor. Then all became still. Mrs. Verloc, on reaching the door, had stopped. A round hat disclosed in the middle of the floor by the moving of the table rocked slightly on its crown in the wind of her flight. End of section twelve.